0: and greetings to Rewind the Clock (laughs) and for today I've got a very special guest called Andy Kroll who works at the University of South Wales so I'm gonna let him introduce himself to you so you're on younger
1: hello (laughs) everyone it's really great to be here and I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about 19th century slums oh yes indeed
0: we are so the question is can you, in simple terms, hopefully, how can you explain what a, a Victorian slum was?
1: Well, Steve, that's, <laughs> you've actually taken us to a really difficult question. Have I? Of sorts of <laughs> yes. Um, because slums, it's, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting concept. Isn't yeah. it? I think, in, in common sense terms, we mm. all have an idea of what a slum is in the now. Yeah. And I think... Probably, even if you've never, even if you've never studied nineteenth-century history, you've probably got a strong idea of what a nineteenth-century slum looks like yeah. or would have looked like, probably through the works of, I suppose, Charles Dickens. I mean, almost yep. all of us, I think, have, have either read Oliver Twist or we will have seen. Film. Uh, I won't ask you to start seeing some of the songs from the, uh, <laughs> uh, the 1960s version, Steve. Yeah. Um, but I think you know all of us know about uh, Oliver Twist, and of course, Oliver is set largely in the slums. Fagin's den is in the slums. Yes. And I think you know Dickens gives us probably the strongest idea of what a 19th century slum is. So, I mean, I, I mean, if I was to throw it back to you, Steve, and I can, I right. think I can guess what you're going to say. <laughs> If I said to you nineteenth-century slum, what two or three words would spring to mind? Well, apart from um,
0: overcrowded, uh, unhygienic, and very, very, very dirty. <laughs> That's yeah, about it, I, really. I, I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: I mean, I think I think you've probably hit you know our uh, top top three there. Overcrowding is probably the closest we've got to to a sort of shared idea of what slums are in the here and now. Yes. Um, Now, if we're looking at, say, the early 21st century, um, then as far as the UN goes, for instance, uh, I think they wrote this in about 2006, their argument was that a slum is a house in which there are more than three people per room. Oh, right. Okay, so, so, so overcrowding is built into the idea today of what, what a slum is. Right. Now, uh, the kind of, and I think filth, we would say that slums yeah. are filthy. We could say something about the lack of clean water, um, which is also vital. Toilets are a really big part yes. of the <laughs> Um, because again it's very common today and a very common understanding of slums in the here and now is that slum dwellers don't have access to it, to I suppose proper toilets. Now, I mean I actually read something last night uh, which was quite shocking, something, this was, a, this was 2010, 40% of the world today right. haven't got access to, uh, to any form of standard toilet, wow. whether it's a shared toilet or a private
0: toilet.
1: Oh. So... If we were to take that figure, you could say 40% of the world today, are, you know, living in slums. Wow. The reason why it gets difficult, I think, is that um, although we've got these common ideas, when we start drilling into 19th century slum history, mm. the slum becomes a kind of um, relative concept. Yes. In that The things that we would find very challenging today, many people back in the 19th century just took took as as sort of natural yes um so it's really difficult for us to transport some of these you know seemingly very simple ideas about lack of clean water um lack of toilets overcrowding overcrowding can you know is one of those concepts which more than three in a room in the here and now is seen as a slum you go back to the 19th century and you would have included lots of people who would have said we don't live in slums no, exactly um, yeah. for, you know, for them families of eight ten twelve in a room would have been slums yeah so i think i think we you know hopefully we're getting somewhere with all of this rambling but <laughs> you know the point i think steve is that one of the things we need to factor in to, to to what is a 19th century slum is did people who lived in those areas yeah how did they think about their living mm. conditions and really slum and we might come back to this is one of those labels which often outsiders put on yes. those poor areas and maybe people who live there, we can call them slum, slum dwellers, but they yes. might not call them
0: dwellers. Yeah, see so what you mean, exactly. So, I mean, I suppose the nearest thing, I wouldn't because the, you wouldn't call them slums or such, especially like in the deep south where you have like the ghettos, would they be like similar in a way, do you think? Because the way, especially in the early 30s, especially in the deep south like Mississippi or Tupelo, do you know what I mean? That sort of area. Mm. They were like one time shanties and... Because would they be classed as that or just not I think they me? certainly
1: could be yeah no I think I think they certainly could be and I think what you've identified there which is often a really important point is that they're seen often as no go zones yeah they? they're seen as outside the pale mm. um, they, these are places these are spaces where civilized in inverted commas yeah. however <laughs> they make sense of that term that civilized people would not go Um and once you've got spaces like that, it's very easy to use the term "slum." Yes, which exactly. It becomes a kind of trigger word. And in fact, you did it brilliantly. Now, I asked you, "What do you think about a 19th-century slum?" And you didn't even have to think about it. No. You know, <laughs> you mentioned the word "slum," darkness, danger, disease, yeah. crime, vice filth all of these things kind of get you know um this uh, are all carried by that one small word Mm. and it's really interesting if you go back to the 19th century at the very start of the 19th century slum simply meant uh, a room yeah it was a room room in which you slept Mm. so it was a room in which you slumbered and slowly, 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 by the time we get to the mid nineteenth century, begins to take on the kind of meaning that we're used to now. Yeah, um, uh, I think you know Charles Charles Dickens writes in uh, writes in one of his sort of uh, 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 journals, in fact, right. that he went on a you know, he, he went on a London back slum kind of walk last night. <laughs> Dickens went through a phase when he simply couldn't get to sleep. And oh, instead wow. of just going downstairs and reading Dickens being Dickens, <laughs> went out and walked through the poor areas, areas that he called slums. Um, and it was probably you know, it's on these kind of walks that he was constantly taking mental notes, right. observing people who would then end up in one of you know one of his great novels. Exactly. Um, so 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 by the mid-19th century the word slum has taken on the kind of meanings that we're used to thinking of. And by the eighteen eighties, it's even become a verb so it isn't just a thing or a place it's it's an action you could go slumming right. middle-class people will go to the poor areas of london um, to experience the thrill of seeing the poor oh, living wow. in slums yeah oh. experiencing danger Gosh. Um, so yeah so i think you know back to your question any areas which which are sort of stigmatized, any areas yes. which are seen as other or dangerous mm. or no go zones, the word slum is often never very far away from those areas. Yeah,
0: that's true. All right. Because what I was think, uh, I come across something, so I don't know what you think on this, but um, if we get to the next bit, um, Oliver Twist, because you mentioned Oliver Twist, and I remember seeing, or heard something, or read it, I can't remember where it was, that um, Maybe Dickens had written that thirty years earlier. Nobody would have noticed it and then laughed at, thinking, "Whatever." But it seems to have come at a time when it was like the slums, like we'll use the word "slum" again, on the rise, so to speak. Is that what do you think of that? Is that a? Oh yeah, no,
1: oh. I think that's a problem, mean I haven't heard that, but it's a brilliant point, I think, Steve. I mean. <laughs> You know, Dickens, born in 1812, he writes Oliver Twist, is one of his early novels, so he's writing that in the 1830s. Mm. And actually, the 1830s is one of those decades where ideas about the poor, fears about the poor begin to really get supercharged. Um, we've got all sorts of movements which are beginning to take hold, uh, movements for the vote, for yep. instance. We've got riots in places like urban South Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rising of eighteen thirty one. Um, we've got, uh, I suppose, the Newport Rising of of, of eighteen thirty nine. Um, Chartism is is at work. This is the movement, probably the biggest mass movement, yeah. in the uh, of that great nineteenth century, in, in terms of trying to get the vote for sort of ordinary people. Um, and, and this is critical, I think, right. ideas about crime and vice are beginning mm. to really take shape in, in quite new ways. The idea that, that there is a class of people living in the slums who make their living from crime. Right, yes. That's really beginning to take hold. It's part of a middle-class nightmare. Yeah. And, you know, it is remarkable that I think we're still talking about we're still getting children to act in plays about all of the twist or watching musicals about yeah. the twist. this is almost 200 years old now mm. you know dickens really put his finger on something yeah um, which was just coming into being i think in the 1830s really fears of the poor now there's often been fears of the poor yeah but there's something else going on of course at this time london is growing at an exponential rate mm. um it's about a million people in 1801 wow. um, and but you know you're adding to that um, you know at a, again an exponential rate during the course of the first half of the mm. 19th century millions are flocking into that great city it's getting bigger and bigger and something else exciting happens <laughs> residential segregation in other words middle-class people are beginning to do something new they're beginning to separate themselves from the poor. they're beginning to go out and live on the outskirts of the towns and cities this seems natural to us now doesn't it we think of suburbs this is true yeah (laughs) but actually there's nothing natural about suburbs cities can and did grow in lots of different ways. Mm. And it was often the case that you'd be living in a city where the rich and the poor were living in the same street, even the same building. Yes. Um, But London is one of those areas, and then other great cities in in England and Wales, and indeed Scotland too, begin to grow in a very strange way. Mm. The poor get left at the centre, and the wealthy go out into the uh, suburbs. That's true. Um, and if you think about, I suppose, Tudor cities, it was often the opposite. The yeah. rich would live at the centre, and the poor <laughs> would live outside the city walls. Right. So yeah. there's something new going on here. And I think what Dickens was really tapping into was many middle-class people lived their lives mm. no longer knowing, A, where the poor lived. They didn't know any poor people. They just yeah. read about them, and they rioted, and mm. when they caused... You know sort of issues yeah um, to i suppose be uh, you know frightened about and dickens brings the poor to those suburbs to mm. those readers and he brings them to life and he associates them with crime advice faking's den is in a slum yeah and that's a really important point dickens wanted to wanted his readers to make that link yeah and so yeah dickens is so important not just I think to understand
0: how many in the 19th century understood the poor but he's still talking to us today so, it's yes. a middle-class idea of poor people mm, exactly because when you talk about like oh, the poor in the slums type we could keep you just line now. but it's interesting when you think about it then it's not necessarily a new thing because if you look at like the ancient Rome at the time because they had the same problem they had their own areas where the poor were like separated and pushed to one side and the rich moved out as well, do you know what I mean? So, uh, oh, yeah. so it's not strictly, almost not new, is it, really? It's just something you don't really think about, do we, as such? That's right. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, again, one of the things that makes the 19th century a little bit different is the scale of 19th century yeah. urban growth, the speed of 19th century urban growth. I mean, you know, by, say, 1851, big, big towns... Bigger cities mm. had sprung into being where 50 years ago they were literally villages of about two, two and a half thousand. Yeah. Suddenly you're dealing with a you know, hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand, mm. even more. So you've got massive urban growth at a rate that had never happened before. Britain's the first nation which has more people living in towns and cities than not. Yeah. And that's remarkably late. It's not not until 1851 that Britain becomes a truly urban nation. But it was the first place to do that. So you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right, Steve. We're not saying that the 19th century invents areas of poor housing (laughs) or invents areas where the poor congregate and live. But I think the speed and scale of that process really takes off. And there's something else. And it's the kind of media. Britain is, in the 19th century Britain, the first place where you've really got a mass media. And we're talking about newspapers. But yeah. Newspapers are so important and really communicating mm. to their readers, mass readership, um, ideas about the poor, ideas about slums. Slums in their own bank, you know, yeah. so local newspapers, <laughs> slums would be news Yeah, exactly. So yeah. They'd, they'd, and they'd always be frightening. Mm. They, they would always be stories about crime. Oh, yes. And, you know, and which is sometimes true were some areas linked with crime you know did did crime happen yeah uh, here's here's one i mean given that we're actually um, talking in south wales yeah it might be worth just for a second if we've got time thinking about something like Merthyr titfeld yeah murthyr a great iron town wales's first town of note about 7,000 people living there in 1801, about 40,000 by the time we get to the 1830s, the 1840s, rapid urban growth. And there was one area which really stands out um, in the 1830s, 1840s, and gets a real name for itself, and it was called China. China was just a tiny tangle of courts and alleys, perched right by the side of the uh, Tuff River, um, it was only a five-minute walk from, you know, Merthyr High Street. Wow. It was seen as one of those, yeah, it was seen as a no-go zone and it was seen as the heart of this, this kind of criminal uh, underworld. Mm. Um, and there was this idea, we come back to that idea, as Lamsley mentioned earlier, of a kind of criminal class. Yeah. This, this idea that there was a group of people who made their living from crime. <laughs> China, middle-class writers were certain that they were, you know, China had its own fagin it had its own network of thieves yes. and bullies and pimps and so on mm. um, but actually it's a really powerful stereotype it's a really powerful it is. image but if, but if you go looking for evidence you can find it's hard to do, but you can find evidence that this, this wasn't necessarily any more criminal than any other area Exactly. it was full of poor people, yes but it was full of People who made uh, a family life for themselves. People who fell in love. Mm. People who cared for each other. Neighbours who looked after each other. And actually, above all, Steve, mm. um, this was a place of crushing hard work. Yep. Many people thought that you know the slums were made by lazy slum dwellers who couldn't be bothered Yo. to work. But if you look at most slums, it's full of people who were working by the mid 19th century: 12 hours, 13 hours, yep. 14 hour days, sometimes more. Sweated labour. Mm. Um, people who were what were called the labouring poor. They were working really hard, really long hours, but such low wages that they could never get out of these poor areas. That is true. And they often experienced hunger and so. On. Mm. So, you know, again, we've, we've kind of mentioned it uh, a few times now. There's the slum stereotype. There's this idea of what middle class outsiders thought oh, about yeah. these poor areas. And then we've got to try to, if we can, cover mm. the real history of the people who lived in slums. And it's difficult. It is. Because most of the sources are written by the middle class outside. Because most <laughs> of the slums, well, as A, haven't got time to keep diaries, and B, <laughs> can't write in any case.
0: Exactly, so, yeah. Sources are a big, big problem. Mm. So obviously, because these um, areas, it's all to do, as you know, with the Industrial Revolution and all the, how it's been crammed in, because they want the workers to be together. So like I said, some of these areas, have like the cram, like you said, because everybody's moving in from, especially agriculture, moving because they got no jobs. People from Ireland and everywhere else are all moving in on just congregating. And like you said, you think, oh my gosh, you know, it's their own fault type thing, but you can't afford anything. There's nothing you could do. Everything's just crushed together because the the owners of the mills want them there. Do you know what I mean? But if you actually look, like a family. They usually have big families as well, because the death rate is not very good. It's like we say, medical treatment isn't like it is nowadays. You know, you can't pop down to the NHS. And, um, none of that. But when you think about it, some of the, if you look at their houses, probably inside the little rooms, and they're really small, they've probably got their own little trinkets that are precious. And it says, this is, this is, this is our posh thing, you know, for something like a Sunday. You know, we're going to use this. This is who we are, really, not who you think we are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think
1: it's an excellent point, Stephen. In fact, um, many scholars who've spent their lives writing about 19th century slums, some of them are beginning to argue, listen, there's only so far we can go Mm. with these middle class writings. There's so much we can learn about the slums from from these middle class writers. I mean, we've got literally millions and millions and millions of words about 19th century slums so much of them, 99% are written by outsiders. So one of the big movements in, in recent years has been where we can, it's not always possible, no. comes, but dig up 19th century slums. And let's see if we can find what, you know, artifacts that we use by the poor. And you're right, we suddenly get a very different view of them. We find plates with mm-hmm. just a piece of really pl- cheap plates, cheap, uh, cheap china cups, but they've got patterns on them, these aren't, you know, there's, I mean, again, it might seem such a small point as to, no. so what, the poor, you know, the poor didn't eat out of their hands. Why does that matter? Because so many of the writings by these middle-class outsiders said these people yeah, look like it? animals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's, you know, one of my favourite things that comes from the slums, uh, and we find them wherever there are slums, um, very fine combs. Mm. which had been thrown away and they piled up in these sort of cesspits and so on, <laughs> and then they dug up 150 years later. Why did the poor have such fine-toothed combs? To get rid of lice. Yes. Lice that would be on sort of body hair and so on. Again, so what, you might say? The point is, given that the slum stereotype constantly uh, tells us these people were living like animals, mm. Those combs show us that the poor didn't like having body lice. Yeah, exactly. They weren't uncivilised, they weren't weren't animals. They were people who were trying to make the best of of the situation. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So, I think you're right. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are other sources we can use to try to uncover the real history of the Slender Ones. Great, thank you. Well, my friend Andy, it was, it's so good. Our time's gone, dear
0: enough. In fact, it's gone nearly. So, what I want, to, if it's up to you, all right, with you, I would like to call this part one. And then later on, in a few weeks, whenever, we can do a part two. Because obviously, it's too much, we, haven't, we haven't touched in of the stuff I want to talk about. <laughs> do you know these I
1: mean? absolutely yeah so absolutely.
0: is that okay with you if we do another part yes. two. Oh brilliant thank okay. you well thank you so that was andy great that was was oh, fascinating you should have been there the lectures they were great they i enjoyed them anyway
1: <laughs> so that's
0: my pleasure